Every summer at Tahlequah, Oklahoma, the Cherokee Indians sponsor their Trail of Tears pageant, the story of how the U.S. government robbed the so-called five civilized tribes of their homelands in the south and moved them by force to Oklahoma. They don't tell about the thousands of blacks the tribes brought with them, their slaves. My mammy and pappy belonged to a part Cherokee named W.P. Thompson when I was born. The woman reading is my sister, Elaine Ford Staten, but the words are those of our great-grandmother, Phyllis Thompson Pettit, whose Georgia-born parents were brought by the Cherokees over the trail. Johnson Thompson was Phyllis's brother. Before that, Pappy had been owned by three different masters. One was the rich Joe Van, who lived down at Weber's Fall, and another was Chief Lowry of the Cherokees. My cousin, Maurice Shepard, reading the words of his great-grandfather. The interviews were conducted 52 years ago here at Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, when both my great-grandmother Phyllis Pettit and her brother Johnson Thompson were in their 80s, part of a federal writer's project. Now, both of them are buried in this cemetery. But after I read their words, I was set on a mission to find out how my family became slaves of the Indians. That was a February 2011 news segment recorded by journalist Sam Ford for WJLA-TV, an ABC affiliate in the Washington, D.C. area. In the first of two episodes about slavery among indigenous nations known as the Five Civilized Tribes, Ford explored the fact that his African-American ancestors had been enslaved by members of the Cherokee Nation in the first half of the 19th century. These family members were then transported to Oklahoma Territory when the federal government expelled those who held them in bondage from their ancestral lands in the southeastern United States. Over the course of several decades, more than 100,000 people made a forced migration to what became known as Indian Territory. War, forced treaties, legislation, and court-ordered expulsions made room for land-hungry whites in what is now Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, and Tennessee. Sometimes those new landlords took over full, working plantations. The ethnic cleansing began in 1830 when gold was discovered on Cherokee land and was largely complete by 1850. In a mass expulsion in the winter of 1838, more than 13,000 Cherokee walked a thousand miles from Tennessee to their arid new home. About 15% of those expelled from these southern states died of starvation, cold, and disease before they arrived. The 1838 expulsion became known as the Trail of Tears. But these two decades of forced migration were a tragedy on multiple levels. The Cherokee, for example, were prosperous and peaceful. They had hoped to remain in the young United States by becoming more like the European colonizers and living in harmony with them. This was a political and cultural transformation welcomed by President Thomas Jefferson. Indeed, Jefferson's writings on race indicate his belief that while the descendants of enslaved Africans would always represent a distinct and inferior race, Native people would eventually evolve to become indistinguishable from whites. To some extent, Cherokee elites embraced this vision too. They developed a written alphabet and language, a constitution, a formal political system, and an agricultural and business economy. And while captivity and bondage had not been uncommon in indigenous North America, the Cherokee adapted older traditions to the modern world, incorporating the permanent racial slavery of African-descended people into their economy. During the Civil War, the Cherokee fought and lost as allies of the Confederacy. 
And yet when emancipation came, formerly enslaved people became part of the new Cherokee Nation. Distressingly, in 2011, that tribal government sought to sever its ties with some of those black descendants. After generations of welcoming those who called themselves the freedmen, the nation expelled 2,800 citizens who could not prove that they were genetically descended from indigenous people, a step previously taken by the Muscogee, or Creek Nation, in 1979. Fortunately, a federal court reversed this decision in 2017, and the Cherokee Nation's Supreme Court affirmed it in 2021. Needless to say, entangled Black and Native American histories are both rich and vexed, and I'm highlighting but one aspect of them. This past, often handed down in family stories and heirlooms, has also created a desire for some Black people, as in some whites, to discover a Native American identity. It is a reality for some and a fantasy for others. It often includes the desire for a Native American past that is accessible and retrievable, sometimes through the tangible benefits of tribal membership, but often through art, crafts, and genealogical research. They take trips to ghostly, sometimes abandoned plantation houses, where remnants of these histories tease seekers with a fragmented lost past. For a few descendants, it has led to the purchase and renovation of dilapidated Cherokee plantation houses abandoned by whites. Some have purchased old estates or portions of them where their ancestors were actually enslaved. Hundreds of YouTube videos, sometimes produced by real estate agents, provide tours of such places, future homes that they cheerfully assure viewers are haunted by ghosts. Who are these ghosts? It isn't clear. Nearly all mention slavery, but only in passing, as an unavoidable but safely historical reality of the times. Video cameras pan lovingly over peeling white ionic columns and wooden exteriors, sagging roofs, and brick verandas in desperate need of repointing. Others feature a fully restored home, complete with period furniture and elegant portraits of the tribal leaders whose fortunes were built on the backs of captive Africans and their children. This is why I picked up Harvard historian Taya Miles's novel, The Cherokee Rose, a novel of gardens and ghosts, out this summer in paper from Penguin Random House. A MacArthur Prize winner, Miles is one of our preeminent scholars of 19th century Native American and African American history, but she is also a historian of material culture. She tells the stories that objects, houses, and images long to teach us. Miles is one of the most accomplished historians and writers I know and the author of seven books, including The Cherokee Rose and All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake, winner of the 2021 National Book Award. But it was the research for Miles' 2010 book, The House on Diamond Hill, A Cherokee Plantation Story, that wouldn't let go, and that led Miles to write a novel about how three women of color resolve and uncover a shared past on the grounds of the fictional Cherokee Rose, a plantation in Georgia. The Cherokee Rose is not only good historical fiction, it's a book you will want to take on vacation. Join Taya and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 31, Haunted by History.
Miles, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. I wondered if we could start by you telling our listeners what is the story you're telling and don't give them any spoilers. Okay, let me try not to give spoilers. The story I'm telling in the Cherokee Rose is the story of a place. It's a haunted place in the U.S. Southeast, which was originally, of course, indigenous lands, indigenous territory. And it was a place where slavery was practiced not only by Euro-Americans, but also by indigenous peoples. The story follows three women from different backgrounds in more or less our contemporary moment as they return to this plantation in what is now Georgia and discover that there is much about their own lives and about the past that they didn't know, but that they need to know in order to move into the future. So there are three women of different backgrounds, very distinct backgrounds, but related backgrounds. So can you tell us who they are and what they represent about our nation's history? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the women at the center of the story is Jinx Miko. Jinx is her nickname, her proper name is Jennifer, and Jinx is Muskogee, also known as Creek, from what would have been an Indian Territory and is now Oklahoma. Jinx is also a budding historian. She is a tribal historian. She is a newspaper writer and also working on a dissertation. And she discovers that the ways in which her family members have understood relationships with Black people and Afro Creek people uh, is troubling. And so she sets off on a quest, which is really uh, put into motion by another tribal member who is Afro Muskogee. And she ends up going over to Georgia to uh, uncover a, a mystery that's important to uh, this fellow member of her nation. Another main character in the novel is Ruth, Ruthie Mays. And Ruth is a mixed race person. She has a black mother and a white father. She lives in Minnesota, but she actually hails from Georgia. Her family has deep Southern Georgia roots. And she has felt distant from her grandparents, partly because of a riff, let's say, in her family that relates to her parents' relationship and her parents' different ideas about Georgia, about intimacy, about the past. And so Ruth has grown up not at all feeling close to her mother's family or her mother's home place. And because she's on an assignment from the magazine that she writes for, she ends up also going to Georgia. And then the third character is a character about whom I hear quite a lot from people who read the book. <laughs> Claire, you're nodding. Um, this is Cheyenne Coterell. And Cheyenne Coterell is a wealthy African-American young woman who has a career in the design industry. She has grown up with every luxury and she feels that she's entitled to the world. So Cheyenne has a bit of an attitude that's me, me, me focused, and she's used to getting everything she wants. She decides that what she wants is this plantation house that she discovers is going to be auctioned off in Georgia on former Cherokee lands. So these three women end up together in this place, coming from different racial 
backgrounds, different class backgrounds, and with very different motivations for being there. And Cheyenne is sort of a metaphor for a certain kind of American who's not always Black, right? A, a certain kind of American who thinks they can sort of consume Native American culture and use that to weave a fantasy about their connection to the past. Can you talk about that kind of American a little bit? Yeah, I mean, well, absolutely, Claire. I mean, and this is part of the tricky aspect of the novel. The character that you just described, that kind of persona, that kind of ideation about history and about place and about a relationship is often understood to be a white person. And we have this term playing Indian, and I think we're very familiar with Philip Deloria's work in relation to this term, with Raina Green's work in relation to this term. And we know that playing Indian is, is not a positive activity. It's an activity in which a person who is not Indigenous decides to assume Indigenous qualities, characteristics, sometimes to pose as Native for their own sense of identity or even self-aggrandizement or for access to what they believe will be certain kinds of benefits that will come their way. The wrinkle in this story, as you said, Claire, is that we have an African-American woman who is really operating in this similar kind of guise in that she believes she's Native, she wants to be Native, it's incredibly meaning for her to be Native, and she's willing to drive this narrative home, you know, against all evidence for, you know, quite a very long time. And for her, being Native is about looking a certain way, you know, having a certain skin tone, having a certain hair texture and length, but also about laying claim to Indigenous lands, which really is the story of this country, the idea that non-Native people have the rights and are entitled to lay claim to Indigenous lands and on those lands to build their livelihoods, to build their dream worlds, to create their futures. Cheyenne is wrapped up in a very similar story with an additional complexity, which is that she is Black and there is going to be, in her case, a history of slavery and a history of trauma for Black people that's connected with this desire for Indigenous ancestry. And this desire for Indigenous ancestry in some ways is, is a way of distancing that trauma when in fact the story you tell in this book is one in which Black and Native American histories are intertwined in some tragic ways. You've told that story before in your scholarship, and I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how the history of Black Americans and Native Americans are intertwined in this particular place, which is the southeastern United States and also Oklahoma. Well, I want to back up for just a second and talk about what you pointed to there, Claire, which is the story or the understanding of what those ties would have looked like that many African Americans carry with them and, and, and you know, carry with us. This is a story that tends to focus on positive Black and Native ties, on the idea that where Black people were enslaved, Native people were their allies. They were welcoming to enslaved African Americans. They invited them into their communities. 
and uh, invited them into a tribal citizenship even. This is a story which says that Native Americanness and those kinds of connections in the past sort of elevate African Americans above and beyond the more I'd say typical, you know, expected story of what it has meant to be black in America. And so African Americans have at times and over time wanted to claim indigeneity as a way to really try to escape facing head on the trauma of enslavement and all that it has meant. Now, I need to add a parenthetical comment here, which is to say that, of course, some Black people are also Indigenous people. Some Black people are descended from Native American ancestors, and that is an important part of the history. But I'm really talking about kind of a a broader narrative that it's held by uh, many more African Americans than can, you know, really kind of accurately claim Indigenous connections or Indigenous identity. So that is a narrative that is pretty prominent in African-American experience and history and and lives. And when I started studying Native American history in grad school, I believed that narrative. I think it's safe to say that I I felt that was what had taken place, Claire, um, partly because of a story in my own family. But when I started doing secondary research and then primary research, I realized that this story may have been true in in some cases, in some places, in some instances, but there was also a very dominant story, dominant reality, which revealed African-American enslavement within Native American societies in what is now the U.S. Southeast. So the Southeastern coastal states of Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, where the Native nations that are known as the five tribes lived. And these would be the Cherokees, the Creeks, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, and the Seminoles. All of those nations engaged in buying, the selling, the trading, the owning, the exploitation of Black people whom they held as their property. And this is obviously the great American stain. And these three characters face it in very different ways. Jinx sort of charges in and faces it head on and wants answers. Ruth has the capacity to see and hear ghosts. And Cheyenne is holding it at arm's length unless she can fashion the story for herself. So these are three, you know, really interesting ways of approaching this tragic past of enslavement and Native American history, which is also a history of displacement and theft. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Jinx a little bit. What is she looking for in this book? What does she want? Well, Jinx is the scholar among the three. And she is a scholar who feels uncertain about her standing in relationship to her work, in relationship to her research. Jinx was very close to a great aunt who was a tribal historian and who raised her to ask certain questions, to go to the people around her for answers, to collect documents and newspapers, and to really kind of hold and carry the story of the people. 
But when Jinx went away to graduate school pursuing her PhD in history, she realized that her professors thought that her approach to doing historical work did not rise to their level of what they thought of as serious scholarship. So she left her PhD program, she went back home, and she sort of settled for a life that she told herself was fine, but that really didn't allow her to continue to pursue her intellectual ambitions. So she's somebody who has a great deal of talent. She's driven by these questions. She's driven by a sense of purpose and a sense of duty in relation to various members of her nation. And yet she doesn't quite think that she's up to the task of doing that work. And Jinx is a character who is going to really resonate to a lot of graduate students, a lot of younger historians, certainly resonated with me. And she represents a certain problem, which is there are many ways of doing history and many ancient ways of doing history and that they can shed light on the questions we're asking today, but not if the profession won't let them do it. So let's move to Ruth. What does Ruth want from this? Ruth is going through life as a loner. Her mother is deceased. She's not extremely close to her father. She refuses to be introspective and to to look deeply into her her own feelings and to the things that she knows about her family history and about her past. And she instead writes in notebooks all the time to try to observe and, and catalog her world as opposed to feeling it. So she is not in touch with her inner self. She tries very hard to maintain distance with her inner self. And she really accomplishes that through writing, (laughs) like Jinx. Ruth is a writer. She writes in in a different way and in a different mode. And she is going down south because she has to take on a story for this shelter magazine, um, kind of like a a Better Homes and Gardens or Martha Stewart Living. Yeah, those kinds of magazines. Uh, She needs to to do uh, some kind of piece for this magazine because she really cannot bear to not work. She has to constantly work to escape her feelings about who she is and who her family is and what it all means. So she finds out about this Cherokee plantation home that's going to be auctioned off. And she convinces her editor to let her go write a story about it. And she goes to write the story precisely because she is trying to escape herself. But what she finds is that this story is unfolding exactly in the place where not only had her mother grown up, her mother's a Southerner, but also where she had been sent to summer camp for quite a long time as a child. So for Ruth, going back to Georgia is really a revisitation of uh, a place in her life and in her family's life that is critically important and that will really compel her to address these questions about who she is. Well, and there's this tension between Cheyenne and Ruth, and I don't think we're giving a lot away here to say that Cheyenne sort of sees Ruth as the person she might have been if she were not in control of her entire world. So, you know, Ruth um, has a full figure. Ruth is a little insecure. And Cheyenne is used to having Ruth be her subordinate in a way. And... That changes, right? 
Yeah, it does. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to think about and and work through in this novel, Claire, really was relationships between and among Black women, which of course I've grown up experiencing in my whole life, and which are quite vexed and also very sensitive and very tender. And there are so many facets to these relationships that it's difficult to talk about out loud. I mean, I really always think back to Audre Lorde's essay, Anger, when I think about these issues. And I wanted to try to tease out some of those relationships and some of those reasons for resentment among Black women in the story. And that really comes to a head when Cheyenne and Ruth meet each other again after the passage of uh, many years. So yes, Cheyenne feels like she is a person who's at the center of the world. She is extremely entitled, and she thinks that everyone else ought to be paying homage to her. In her past relationship with Ruth, which we won't get into much here, she was able to maintain this power role and to constantly be engaging in power plays. But times have changed. This location where they are meeting each other is charged with an energy that has been left behind by past historical actors, an energy that lives in the place itself and and grows in the plants there. And Cheyenne is not going to be able to withstand this energy, which is actually going to favor Ruth in a certain kind of way. Cheyenne also comes to need Ruth and need Jinx. And there's a moment in which the ghost begins to appear. And we have, we have a sense that, that the ghost is there waiting for us. And the ghost leads them to a manuscript. Again, I don't think it's giving much away to say that. And the, the manuscript is the story within a story. And so you wrote a primary document to insert into this novel. Can you tell us about doing that? It was brilliant. I can't tell you how fun it is to talk about this with you, Claire. Yes, I wrote it in because I mean, how how often do we, as you know, historians, you know, scholars of the past, people interested in the past, just long for, just long so truly and deeply for the kind of source that would seem to open itself up to us and show us these these lives of people who've lived before us. Powerful desire, right? So Absolutely. And every once in a while it happens and we remember it forever and we tell each other over drinks at the AHA. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes we do kind of, you know, will uh, these sources into being. And um, in the novel, I wanted to do that for the main characters. I wanted to create uh, a record of the place that would force the scales to, to fall from their eyes in terms of how they viewed themselves, one another, and the history of this plantation. And that source is the diary of a Moravian missionary woman who had to live there in the 19th century. And it's it's a very violent story. And it provides a kind of counterpoint in the novel to remind the reader that these are all very serious things that we're talking about. And that all of the relationships of today have descended from other relationships that were horrible and violent and and devastating to people. I want to I want to switch us a little bit, Taya, and ask you about 
material culture, which is one of the things that you do so well. This book is full of beautiful descriptions of things and places and gardens. How did it feel as a historian to just give yourself free reign to do that? <laughs> wonderful. It felt so, so wonderful, Claire, but, but it was hard to get to that place. It was really a struggle for me to just kind of let myself go with the descriptions and also with the plot and the historical aspect of the novel. Because I wrote a history of the plantation where this novel is set. And I did a lot of research for that history. And I, I as best as I could, tried to arrive at a reasonable reconstruction of what it looks like and, and what happened there. But in the novel, even though I set the novel in the, in the same place, I wanted to be able to uh, be more creative with that, which meant kind of writing in some ways against my previous reconstruction, which was very hard to do. So when I first started writing, I was always stopping myself, second guessing myself, telling myself, wait a minute, that garden plot wasn't actually there, or that particular plant didn't actually <laughs> grow in that certain place. Or that building was actually to the West and not to the East. I was stopping myself all the time and being kind of my own inner critic from the perspective of somebody who'd written a history. It took quite a while for me to convince myself that this actually was fiction and that I could let some of that go and that I, that I could kind of reimagine the place as it existed for these fictional characters, and for the fictionalized characters in the historical part of the novel. Well, and you also take on the question of preservation. How do, how do we bring places and things into the present in a way that honors their history and doesn't cover up aspects of our history that are unpleasant? And, and Cheyenne makes a real turn there. You know, I came to think each of these three women brought something to the table. Jinx brought her knowledge as a historian and her drive to rediscover the, the Native American past. Ruth brings her sensitivity and her empathy and her wit. And Cheyenne brings money and power. That is it. <laughs> and all of those things become necessary in the end. I am loving this conversation so much. So you really put your finger on it in terms of what are the talents, what are the resources that each woman brings to the table and how do they come together? I just want to add a couple more things that Ruth also brings her trauma. This is a really important part of the story because it is her trauma that makes her sort of the, the, the chosen person in the present time for the ghost of the past to connect with. And I, I really want to try to make this point about how awful things have happened. They have happened. They have left their marks on us. But those things can be productive and they can be reimagined into creative sources for building something new. And Cheyenne does bring money. She does bring power. I mean, she, she brings her willingness to just steamroll past everybody. And she also brings her connections, which makes a tremendous difference at the end of the novel. I want to ask you, what would you say to a young historian who 
wants to do what you have done, wants to take these really important histories and get them to a mass audience in a way that will be readable and that will sink in? What would you say to that young person who wants to do what you just did? Mm. Well, one thing I would say is that the character Jinx is that person. She really is. I mean, she's the young scholar, the young scholar of color, the young indigenous scholar who has so much to say, but who feels that the profession doesn't want to listen to her. She has to find different routes, and she does, partly by joining with other people who she finds out share an interest. So I think Jinx is really, at least I hope she is, a positive example, you know, um, even a model of how a person might be able to do it. And that includes very much her willingness to take assignments. You know, she's in Georgia because she took an assignment, which was asked of her, requested of her by an Afro-Indigenous woman in her community. I think this is a really important way that we do our work as well. I would also say, I mentioned earlier that I had written a history based on this same location. That for me was really important. It wouldn't be important for everyone or necessary for everyone, but my career has unfolded such that I have needed to do my histories first. I think it was important for establishing a foundation for me to stand on so that I could then experiment in other kinds of forms and genres. And it also gave me a better grounding for being able to recreate this place and to really talk about the historical stakes in our present day relationships, which I think are so, so important. One of the things that I feel very privileged about is having seen African-American history evolve in my lifetime. I mean, I remember picking up Deborah Gray White's book about women in slavery and just thinking, oh my God, this is this is a revelation. Yes. And the field has just exploded since the 1980s. How do you think a broader knowledge of African-American history has changed our profession? And how do you think it's changed the United States? Well, our profession can't be conducted without attention to African-American history anymore, right? I mean, to think that it ever could have been was ludicrous, quite frankly. And shocking. Um, yeah. <laughs> but scholars managed it for, uh, well, goodness, you know, many decades, probably almost a hundred years. So we now know that various populations are at the center of this country's history, that their relationships with one another were at the center of this country's you know, founding and development, and that a part of that story is slavery and is exploitation and is dispossession of indigenous people's lands. We can't write anything about history or know anything about the history of this country without recognizing those things. And how has that changed the nation? Well, I, mean, I think we're seeing that unfold before us right now. I mean, it's changed the, na- the nation in that many people now know that there's no such thing as national innocence. There just isn't. And yet many people want to fight to the end to hold on to that fantasy, to just to grasp it in a fist. I'm holding a fist up, you know, as Claire and I see each other, you know, with the video screen, you all, but just to grasp it and to never let it go. 
because that is the story that is comforting. But we don't have the luxury of living in, you know, comforting stories right now. I think that we need real stories with teeth to be able to go forward in a moment that is full of all kinds of challenges. Yes. And fiction is one way of getting that history to people and making them curious. What do you hope people will want to read after they finish The Cherokee Rose? (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a great question. I think my first response to that would be that I hope they will want to read some of the newer histories that are being published by Afro-Native scholars, such as uh, Elena Roberts, Kyle Mays, Kendra Fields, who are writing about this history and also oftentimes weaving in their family histories. And I think stepping back from that, I would love to see people want to go back and read some of the classics of African-American women's history. You just mentioned Aren't I a Woman by Deborah Gray White, and um, there's going to be a big anniversary celebration of that book just next year. So here's a question I ask at the end of every show, Taya, and I think there are a lot of answers to this question and what we've already talked about, but why should our listeners read this book now? There is uh, maybe a, a a micro answer that I can think of to that and and a, and a macro answer. The micro response is that right now we are seeing what has been a very long time incoming transformation in the Cherokee Nation when it comes to the Cherokee Nation's willingness to accept their role in having enslaved Black people and to welcome the descendants of those people in as full citizens. It took quite a long time, but now the Cherokee Nation has embraced that reality and has made room for descendants of freed people in its citizenry and in the running of its government. I think that's a really important lesson that people can take away from from, uh, the book about what happens when people come together and put their minds towards something. Change really can happen, and we can see it in this example. A macro lesson or idea to take away from the book is I think so much now about how we're living in a time of just unbelievable polarization and division. Nobody can talk to anybody else. Everybody has these kind of knee-jerk immediate uh, assumptions uh, and reactions that uh, come into play when they think that someone is different from them, you know, a different background, a different political stripe, you know, different sexuality, different gender identity, and so on. And those shenanigans are going to get us nowhere. In the novel, we have women who are very different and very suspicious of one another, and they realize they can only move and only make progress in their lives together. I think it's the same for us. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. 
Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.